Hashtag Never Alone with Joe and Mark. Hi everyone and welcome to Hashtag Never Alone episode 10. I'm your lived experience host Joe Ambridge. And I'm Joe's co-host, psychotherapist and relationship counsellor Mark Fielding. Um, today's topic is racism and mental health. We'll be talking about the impacts that racism can have on mental health and then I'll be introducing our guest shortly. So just a little bit of research I've done um, into racism. So racism can take for many forms and can happen in many places. It includes prejudice, discrimination or hatred directed at someone because of their colour, ethnicity or national origin. Um, people often associate racism with acts of abuse or harassment. However, it doesn't need to involve violent or intimidating behaviour. Take racial name calling or jokes or consider situations where people may be excluded from groups or activities because of where they come from. Um, I'd like to introduce our guest now. Um, sorry if I say your name wrong. Um, Betty Shashuti, is it? Oh, yeah, that would be a good way of saying it. Betty Shakuti. Shakuti, okay, sorry. Shakuti, um, yeah. Oh, awesome. Thank you. And um, so just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background and your background in relation to the topic we're discussing. Okay. All righty. Um, it's actually quite an interesting topic. So just starting with where I am in my workplace is I'm a psychologist um, and I studied, I completed my master's in 1991. And I uh, work with all age groups. So, you know, unfortunately people from three up until 93 is how I describe it. I think my oldest client was 96. Um, and, you know, just through COVID, just seeing a whole lot of new presentations, you know, with people struggling in that space. I'm a mother of three children um, and uh, I am the eldest child in the family that I grew up in. And my parents are Maltese and I grew up as a Maltese girl in an Anglo community. So I experienced that type of discrimination myself. And so it's just been quite interesting reflecting around the research and what people, um, you know, experience when they, uh, you know, are subject to racism. It's a familiar experience for me. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of it, especially in Australia with the Aboriginal communities and and Torres Strait Islanders. Because mm. I study I study uh, individuals with learning disabilities, and because I've been studying it in Australia, they talk a lot about yeah. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' men, mental health and how they're discriminated against and excluded, um, especially if they've got learning disabilities as well. And yes, um, just the impact that it could probably have on people like uh, I'm sure like, obviously not young people but older people given their history and also the discrimination they experience can lead to things like alcohol and drugs and stuff I don't know whether you agree with that or anything or at all oh, absolutely that's, yeah because that's a coping mechanism you know it's one of the many coping mechanisms you know resorting to um, you know, in those communities, alcohol, drugs, um, sometimes the way that we manage our emotions um, can be to try to have somebody to notice us. But the way that we express that is through kind of raising the emotional tone. It's kind of like a way of saying, notice me for goodness sakes. But it looks like to the other person that you're being angry or out of control. But we're really, um, we're really just in such an amount of psychological distress. We're just wanting to reach someone. So, yeah, those uh, coping mechanisms are definitely apparent in, in, you know, those communities and others as well. In, in terms of COVID and looking at the kind of the Aboriginal community in Australia, was there a disproportionate effect? Because I know here in the UK, you know, there was a disproportionate effect of COVID on certain, you know, ethnic minority groups, you know, and yeah, I mean, so I'm just wondering how that plays out in Australia. Yeah, well, we've heard about, um, you know, um, hesitancy. So then that's played out in, in certain groups and we've, we've um, heard and um, seen some research in terms of, you know, lower rates of wanting to, you know, take on the vaccination programs. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there are different mindsets there in terms of their beliefs, in terms of, you know, how their body should be treated and, you know, 
um, yeah, just kind of being educated. You know, they kind of like to, it's just different ways that they want to uh, receive research um, or conduct research, just different beliefs about um, medications. So yeah, an entirely different cultural background that really kind of want to be respectful towards. Otherwise it can be seen as being um, abusive, you know, when we're not respecting where somebody else is coming from and imposing our own value systems on them. So it's quite complex. It's quite complex, but we've certainly heard about, you know, lower, lower uptake in terms of um, being so keen to race out and uh, kind of, you know, deal with the coronavirus and the vaccine issues. And we're looking also at protecting those communities. Um, so yeah, is that something similar that's occurring in the UK? Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, it's, you know, it's really, really complex and, you know, there's intersections around kind of privilege and, you know, financial status and, you know, I guess we move on maybe and talk about intersectionality later, but it is a really complex, you know, situation over here. I mean, part of it, yeah. there's been quite a lot of press around mistrust of the government. Um, yeah. It's by, you know, ethnic minority groups, which I, I guess is perhaps obvious, really, you know, feeling yeah. that, you know, the government really is not looking after them. So, you know, why would yes. COVID be any different? Yeah. 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 And, you know, there's histories there that, you know, they're kind of still dealing with in terms of the stolen generation. So that trust in authority figures, you know, we really just need to kind of be respectful to that whole cultural um, historical background. Did you want to come in, Joe? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been enjoying the chat. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's such a I guess I find myself struggling to know where we go because it's such an enormous subject but I guess yeah. we touched on intersectionality I'm just mm. wondering whether you might talk a little bit for our listeners around that and what, what that means and how that looks mm -hmm. okay so in terms of like intersectionality the way I understand it is yeah the overlapping just in lay terms of different uh ways that we see people male female you know, if someone's working in a certain job versus another, the our backgrounds, our um, our uh, heritage backgrounds. So, you know, just looking at those types of uh, overlaps and whether they and how they uh, relate to discrimination or being disadvantaged. Yeah, is that we're on the same topic with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, um, Joe and I've worked a lot with um, you know in the past with kind of learning disabled adults and I guess inter intersectionality comes in you know quite strongly there in many ways yeah. you know yeah. the learning you know disabled kind of community being really really a lot of prejudice against them and then if you're bringing in you know ethnic minority or even gender sexuality then yes. you know the, the possibilities of discrimination become even larger and it makes it more difficult. That's right yeah so you know they, they're kind of almost in some ways um, the factors that you want to consider towards what um, what contributes to someone's level of distress. So um, there's another set of uh, criteria that psychologists often refer to, and it's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences um, Index. And, and what that refers to is the range of experiences that um, children may have experienced in the greater um, the greater the range of risk factors, the greater the range of um, uh, difficulty in dealing with life situations. And it seems like there's a real overlap here with intersectionality. Um, so, you know, here we're looking at, you know, a range of variables like religion and gender and age and what they call class, nationality, disability. Mm. Um, and then with the adverse childhood experiences, it's looking at things like, you know, were your mother and father um, married or not? Um, was there violence in the family? Were they in jail? Was there alcohol abuse, drug abuse? Those types of variables. And you can well understand it. You know, even before I came across the adverse childhood experiences, it was just something that you screened for anyway. As soon as you started asking about the family tree and you thought, well, mum and dad um, broke up when you were about four. And it, it was this type of a breakup. And then there were these amount of partners, you know, in you know, in the new kind of family, and um, there was this amount of kind of violence. It's like, well, that's a really difficult environment for that young person to grow up in. And then you, if we wanted to look at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, 
and people, you know, from a certain race as well, it's like there's another layer that our community, whilst it's really embracing, you know, there's still a whole lot of adjustment. And we've certainly come a long way from when I was at primary school and high school. I'm 55. And, you know, there's just so much more acceptance and acknowledgement, um, public acceptance and acknowledgement. And that wasn't there, you know, 40 years ago when I was um, in high school. And so I think that's a great step that we're going towards. And our children are certainly a lot more accepting. Like I'm really quite proud and thrown at the same time, thrown in a positive way that, you know, my children who are, you know, in their late teens, early 20s are incredibly accepting in ways that we just weren't because we weren't educated that way. You know, these experiences of, um, you know, kind of, you know, we were like, I'm of a European background, but back then we were wogs, right? Right now it's trendy to be a wog and to be of European background, but it wasn't when I was growing up, you know, and it wasn't nice when I was the only girl, basically. I think it was me and the girl whose father owned the, the they were Greek, um, owned the milk bar. And that was it. And I was, I just remember being called a wog and I just felt incredibly sensitive around being isolated in that way. So, you know, it, it just makes a difference when you kind of have that different name. And then, you know, people from a different races, they've got different colours, colour skin and, you know, facial features that make them easier to be recognised and therefore easier to be subtly discriminated or overtly discriminated against, you know. Um, one of the saddest things that I find in my practice is um, it's also one of the loveliest things is that we're far more similar than different. And when you can just sit with somebody and hear them and get to know them, there's a huge opportunity there for acceptance. Um, some of the work that I do is with protection visa applicants from Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I'm always uh, surprised at how similar their stories are in terms of the level of trauma, like deep, horrific trauma. And part of me silently questions, you know, the scientific part, you know, how much of this story is a shared story in terms of, you know, fabrication? And, you know, I need to ask that question of myself, you know, in terms of these communities who are desperate to get this visa, I need to be really sure that I'm doing the right thing as a practitioner. And the way that I, um, you know, talk to them about their experiences, talk about, you know, incidental conversations. I am more than convinced that they're genuine. And it just now makes me look at people who, you know, are in the community who look like they're from those communities with just a whole different understanding. Because I might not have known them before, but now I just think, gosh, I hope you haven't had that level of adversity because it just sounds really horrific. And, and when you're here in Australia trying to make a living, there's a whole lot of financial abuse that goes on, um, you know, the economic um, abuse that goes along with that. And, you know, difficulties with being able to afford housing, difficulties with being able to eat, you know, getting enough food, let alone quality food. And it's just really sad. And a lot of these, what I call kids, you know, they've, they've kind of been here from around 18 plus or minus years of age. And they're here often unsupported by family and really trying so hard just to survive you know when they don't have their families especially those communities are very close to their families and it's just incredibly sad so um yeah maybe you got any comments or questions about yeah i guess racism is quite similar in in a way to mental health and things like and disabilities because people tend to avoid the things that they don't understand they're scared of things stuff mm. like mental health if they don't yeah. understand mental health they don't understand why someone's a different colour to them or a different race to them. They tend to avoid it or they react ne negatively to them and then they yeah. tend to discriminate because of that. That's right. Yeah. I tend to talk to my clients about um, being critical and I ask them to be quite conscious about how the degree to which they're being critical and then to kind of notice that and then to let it sit or let it be or rest and then to kind of revisit whatever the situation is or whoever the person is. And it's like, at the end of the day, you've got a human being there and we know nothing about them and we can overlay our judgments and our criticism. And that's all on us. It's got zero to do with the other person. That judgment comes from us and we can 
equally have a conversation um, with with that person and just have the decency and the respect to uh, to treat them the same way that we would treat anyone else that we would be otherwise interested in for whatever reasons like oh they look like they've got you know the nice house or the nice car or the whatever it is that we kind of value instead of well, hang on a second that's not all that's not even important anyway that it, we're looking at the values that the person holds that really is something that I think most people would value as um as what's important you know how kind is this person how good are they um, how supportive are they to people in, in their community to vulnerable people to their own families so yeah sometimes we get uh, uh, distracted by the shiny things in life <laughs> rather than what's really important which is you know the humanity within all of us yeah and I guess as you say you know anothering goes on doesn't it you know I, I think if you're from a majority background you know the, 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 the yeah there's anothering goes on you, you see someone who's different and you other them you know they become you know some something different from you and just as joe said i guess then there's a stepping away whereas i guess what you're saying is true you know we are all human we all share common human you know we're all human beings and we all can kind of share share that aspect but i'm also wondering about microaggression that this microaggression i saw a really brilliant infographic about it and and it was um in terms of mosquito bites i don't know whether you've seen it uh, yeah. I thought it was fantastic, really, and really, really shows, I think, what it is like to, you know, to be othered, othered and to receive microaggressions that I think, you know, we, I mean, me from, I mean, I'm from a, you know, very privileged, I mean, I'm white, I'm male, perhaps I don't really understand. And I just wonder whether you could talk a little bit about that and microaggressions and just for our listeners so they can understand. Yeah, okay. So just immediately I'd be looking at, you know, it's, it's, you know, just subtle forms of um, being uh, in terms of aggressive towards someone else, meaning turning against someone. So subtle ways um, of, and sometimes not so subtle ways of like turning against somebody, right? So we're certainly not being supportive of them and we're not ignoring them, although we may, but it's, a, it's, it's intended as an act to be against the person. So, you know, it, turns, it, it comes out in terms of, you know, biases or prejudices, discrimination, um, and, you know, it comes out in, and, you know, sometimes it's unintentional because it's just what we've grown up with. You know, we've been conditioned by our society to do this and, you know, it's, you know, we make judgments like, you know, all types of judgments, you know, like, oh, I don't know about that person and do you trust that person? Um, do you want to sit near that person? Um, it's really offensive when we're just basing it off our judgments rather than on um, anything that we should know about this kind of human being. And, um, and you know, we wouldn't like it. I'm sure that all of us have experienced in some ways, even when we're so-called, you know, privileged. Um, I just want to really t- take any of the labels away and just look at the humanity. There will be ways with times when, you know, this is obviously not as important excuse me I shouldn't say it that way not as important but um, for the person when they're experiencing for example not being invited to a party okay that's an example of where you're being um, excluded right now the seriousness can you know escalate for other groups where they're systematically marginalized in that way and you know we may have experienced very um, what I would call low frequency and low intensity so it hasn't happened many times and it hasn't happened as strongly and it doesn't last for as long so looking at the intensity the frequency and the duration with which we experience um, some forms of discrimination but it's it's really hostile and you know we suffer increasing mental health effects when um, those uh, variables are high so when there's when the frequency of discrimination is high when it lasts a long time and when it's really intense and overt, you know, when there are put downs, you know, it's really, really stressful and difficult because the human condition is to connect. At the bottom base of everything, we want to connect. And when the other person is putting us down, it's a threat to our survival instinct and we go into a fear response, a trauma response. And, you know, and then we just try to dumb ourselves down or avoid it. And we talked before about alcohol and drug taking and smoking, all types of substances. It's just a way that to avoid the pain of what we're experiencing. People who are happy and um, 
relatively healthy and have you know uh, their needs more or less met, they don't tend to want to indulge in those activities to anywhere near the degree to someone who's so distressed that they're just as a, as a survival and coping mechanism, they're indulging in those um, um, behaviors or activities because it's uh, less painful than experiencing mm. their emotions. It's entirely painful, physiologically and psychologically painful. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like things like generalization and um, societal views can influence people discriminating against yeah. others? Absolutely. Just even saying, oh, wow, you're really smart, as if you know you're not. <laughs> um, you know, you're, 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 your English is really good. It's like, well, what did you think? You know, so just, the, oh, you know, making in terms of generalizations you were re referring to yeah. anything in particular stuff like generalizations of a race like people see everyone as a different so you, someone from a certain race committed a crime then people think oh that certain race oh. are always going to be criminals or something or yeah yes. something like that yeah. yeah so you know like in melbourne you know there are some communities that have been involved in you know, gang-related activities. And, you know, I feel for, for A, all the people in those situations, but particularly people who've got nothing to do with that situation, who then become identified as part of that group. Well, you know, you're from this country or you're from that race or your skin's that colour, maybe, and therefore you are also dangerous and aggressive and conduct yourself in, in those gang-related activities. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's really bad for somebody who's part of that cultural group because they're wanting to identify as a human being rather than as as being endorsed as part of that group. So um, yeah, it's really difficult. Or you know the way that somebody dresses, or the way that you know uh, career choices that people make. You know, people are discriminated against for that. You know, if a male, for example, back in the day wanted to be a nurse, or if he wanted to be a dancer. Or if he wanted to wear, um, you know, feminine clothing. I mean, all of that was discriminated against. We're slightly um, more open-minded about those these days, but it just continues in one way or another. Discrimination is really um, uh, rampant in our community. And we really want to look towards, as I was saying with my children, it's just being educated and being more open and being more accepting towards people just for the fact that there's a human being that we know nothing about and let's use our communication skills and our values just to be pleasant, polite, respectful, interested, interesting, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, one one um, example that I was uh, reflecting on as you were talking before about generalisations were um, uh, a young person I know uh, has recently come out as being gay. And he was talking about how when he talks to other people about it, they suddenly see him as only belonging to people who are gay. And it'd be like, oh, I know someone who's gay. You, you know, you, you'd really like to get to know them. It's like, well, no, not really. I just kind of am gay. <laughs> and just because I'm gay, it doesn't mean I want to meet necessarily other gay people. Um, I also want to meet people from, from my society, my community. And um, yeah, it's just kind of people get blocked in and, and grouped together as if they're an entity rather than a human being who has their own needs, interests, preferences that have got uh, yeah, something quite outside of, you know, being um, grouped or labelled. I think labelling is quite dangerous. I don't yeah. even like doing it in terms of my diagnosis, you know, of depression or anxiety. I, I just see somebody's having strong emotions. Um, and that we can take care of those emotions rather than get rid of them, which is often what they come to me thinking. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just with another segue, I feel the same about diagnosis. Yeah, sometimes it's helpful, but it really does put, put people in boxes and everyone's in the individual experience around anything is completely individual, isn't it? Because they are you know, we're all very, very different. I mean, I'm just wondering about reporting. I mean, I don't know how it is in... Australia but I think reporting I think plays a part here you know like I think about news stories and I don't think this has really changed over the years you know so mm -hmm. if you know if a white person commits a crime when it's reported they'll just be talk about the crime 
but if it's a black or Asian person, then it will be reported as, you know, a, a black man or an Asian woman committed this crime, you know, which obviously, you know, really reinforces, it's racist, isn't it? I mean, it's clearly racist and reinforces stereotypes. And But I'm just wondering what how it is in Australia. Is it similar in Australia? Um, I don't watch that much TV. In fact, I don't watch TV. <laughs> However, the little that I do here, unfortunately, what I do retain is that we're identifying people in the same way that you have referred to just then. So the visuals in my mind will be, oh, there's a black person from this particular country that has performed this type of crime rather than a group of people or a group of, you know, um, even identifying them as male, man, young, you know, you can look at there's particular groupings there. And we really want to look at what is the real agenda or what is the real issue that we should be addressing regardless of the age regardless of the gender regardless of race or country any of that there's a group of people who are behaving in this way and what I would like to see is what can we do to help those people what can we do to help them have their needs met rather than how can we section them off um, isolate them and really contribute even more to their level of distress that to me is a recipe for increasing that repeat behaviour. So I know that there are a lot of uh, programs around to help support, but we need to be really careful about our language. Um, even during this podcast with some of the things that I've said, I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> I, would, I want to kind of reverse and kind of, just, you know, just gently look at different ways to say things that are respectful to people and that understand their underlying condition rather than, you know, based on fear, like, oh, you're this person, therefore you should be over there and very far away from me. One yeah. of the things you mentioned about Mark, about reporting, just reminded me of something that one of the news shows got into trouble for, they posted on social media or something, and it got deleted pretty quickly. Um, when the England were in the Euro final um, and we lost in the penalties and the three players that took penalties were all, um, obviously, of that colour, um, I don't know the correct way to say it, but obviously they were all black. And instead of saying free play, free England plays, miss penalty as England lose to Italy, they had mentioned the colour. They said free, free black England plays, miss penalties. And they got taken down quite quickly because of the backlash they got from that thing. And they yeah. redid the article so it didn't mention colour because people were like, why do you need to mention colour? They're still players. Mm-hmm. If it had been a white player that had missed, they wouldn't have said, oh, white players miss. No. Mm. the amount of the abuse I mean I don't know whether you got this got covered in Australia but yeah. goodness me the amount of abuse that those players got was you know absolutely atrocious really it was just one of our Melbourne players tidal wave. Um, one of the players that plays for Melbourne Football Club um, one of the AFL teams he commented on the post when it got put up and said why do you need to mention colour that players it doesn't matter what colour they are the white person had missed it wouldn't have been mentioned they got taken exactly. down pretty quickly. Um, yeah, one of the questions I yeah, one of the questions I wanted to ask um, is there uh, much of a link between racial discrimination and suicide rates? Well, within any form of discrimination, and particularly racial, because often you know you can see the person's color and facial um, characteristics, they they're more um, easily within certain societies, right, that haven't much experience or education around being accepting, um, they're, they're therefore more likely to experience um, discrimination, even when it's subtle, even when it's the person that's walking down the street, they can be perfectly lovely, but they're just unsure. And so they go into some type of like a fear response and they may not make eye contact with the person. They may walk slightly further away from them. They may be less likely to say hello versus someone who's of the same kind of background to them. Um, yeah, so then the person feels isolated and it's against the human condition, which is to be connected. So they are, that's the definite um, contributing factor to having increased anxiety and then increased depression. So the way that I look at um, emotions is they're signals, they're healthy. Emotions is healthy and they tell us what we need. So when we're happy, it means that we've got what we need, more or less, right? And when we don't have what we need, we reach out into the world for it. 
you know, we could be irritated that we don't have something or, you know, with increasing attempts to get something, we can become really kind of frustrated or, and then become angry. And then it can go into unhealthy modes, which is, you know, the rage type emotions. And then after a while of doing that, you know, it's kind of quite high energy, like reaching out into the world to get something. We then turn it inward and we go, well, maybe it's my approach. Maybe I need to change this about myself or that about myself. And we can become, you know, quite concerned about how we're doing things, change that. And after a while, we, we intensify that and it can turn into a worry and an anxiety and then it can become into, turn into a panic. And that's also quite an intense way of um, behaving to try to get your needs met. So after a while of trying to reach something from the world and then reach for, to get our needs met by changing ourselves, we become tired and we can fall into, you know, like a, a low, flat, sad, leading all the way up into depressed, helpless, hopeless um, way of emoting or feeling. So it's like, I just need a break. I just would like some of the thing that I want and I need. And for people who are experiencing discrimination, which means I set you apart. You are not a part of me or what I want to have in my life. That's extremely painful, psychologically painful. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, with increasing discrimination, you are definitely at risk. You need, you would need to do a whole lot of self-care and a whole lot of um, uh, acceptance and compassion towards people who are either knowingly or unknowingly um, kind of uh, involved in being discriminatory towards that person. So, yeah, it's very difficult and it is very stressful. And I remember when I was young growing up, it, it was difficult because you just know you're just going to get the same old thing. You know, you wouldn't get picked for games. You wouldn't get picked, you know, um, for, you know, to join certain teams. Uh, people always struggled. Well, we did it here and I'm laughing because I really don't mind at all about it now. But back then I did, you know, I think now I don't mind because there's such a huge amount of acceptance that when someone doesn't get my name right, it completely doesn't matter. But if every single person didn't get my name right and if there was overt, you know, discrimination, it just which is what, you know, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islanders and other um, groups would be experiencing all the time, you know, even saying their name. It's like, how do you say that name? You know, yeah. instead of, you know, just saying, oh, how, how can I say your name? You know, I work with a whole lot of people from a whole lot of um, communities and sometimes they'll anglicise their name and I'll say, well, what's what's the name that you were given? And I'll ask them to really help me to say it. I love saying the name that they would like to use. I think that's a real validation of, oh, I'm okay as I am and with the name that I have, just even on that simple level. Yeah, I do a lot of call, call taking and call making my job that I do because I do contact tracing. We do get a lot of yeah. like complicated names and complicated surnames to say. I, a lot of time I literally just say, I apologise if I say your name wrong. Um, if I say it wrong, please repeat it back to me. Or I'll Google before how to pronounce to make sure I don't say it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think people understand too when you are making an effort, you know, yeah. to, to assist with their name rather than just looking at them with a certain disdain or a low regard towards even making any effort, you know, to get to know them. Yeah, so, the anglicising of names is so true, isn't it? I guess, you know, I guess with, with, with some people, they just get so tired of people, you know, not bothering or not really caring to pronounce mm -hmm. a name properly. They just anglicise their name. You know, which mm. just also kind of reinforces, you know, otherness, really. Mm. I, I, I need to ask a little bit. We, we've maybe touched on this around microaggression, but unconscious bias. Mm. Um, there's, there's a brilliant book. There's a footballer called John Barnes over here who's written a book about yeah. racism. He talks, it's a, it's a really great book, and he talks a lot about this around yeah. know, the fact that we all have unconscious bias. I mean, we all have yeah. unconscious bias. Mm. But how does, it, how does it play out, do you think? Well, it's a big question, but, I mean, unconscious bias. Well, what can you say about it? Well, well, the term itself is, you know, that we're not conscious of it. You know, it's just something that we've grown up with. It's, it's almost the way that we've been shaped and um, conditioned, yeah? And um, it's a form of discrimination because, you know, we're not really... Um, we're not aware that we're doing it and sometimes we're just so accepting of it and it really for example plays out in terms of 
the way. I often used to look at this in terms of how mothers were treated. So when I was a young mum and looking at, you know, gosh, you know, all the judgments, all the comments, all the expectations that were put on mums, you know, we should be able to do it. And why aren't you doing it this way? And why aren't you doing it that way? And there's so much pressure. You're nodding your head there. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm, just, I'm, de- I'm just kind of segueing into the pressure on women in society. I mean, I know that's probably a conversation for another. But, yeah, it's massive, isn't it? And in motherhood. It's all the way to yeah. pay. Yeah, all the way to pay. And I think I can't, I'm astounded that we are still having this gender issue with pay. Yeah. Well, why are we even having that conversation? It's completely, it, it should not be relevant. We should be on the same pay for the same work. But we have discrimination even with our profession as psychologists. You know, there's this bias there and there's no evidence for it. There's no merit to it. It is just completely um, discriminatory behaviour. So, yeah, there are many forms of, you know, uh, unconscious bias so yeah what was your particular interest in that well i just i, I read i'm blocking on the name of the book but i, I read a book and it, it kind of it had a lot of statistics in it around education and around the workplace and uh-huh. boardrooms and in terms of ethnic you know minority groups and you know and how they're treated and in unconscious uh-huh. bias and i can't actually remember the figures but goodness me so even in education you know, the uphill struggle, I think, if you're, you know, if you're from a black or ethnic minority background, the uphill struggle you have to make yes. against unconscious bias from the moment you go to school. Yes. You know, I mean, as a white person, I, I read the figures and even though I'm aware of the area, I was absolutely staggered, really. Yeah. I mean, so from, from, from the moment, you know, someone from, you know, a black or ethnic minority background starts school, potentially there's an uphill struggle against bias, yes. which is absolutely shocking, really. Yes. Yeah. I remember as you were talking, there was a study where they paired American teachers with the worst performing students in the country. And, but they told them that they were the best performing students. Well, they got bloody well great marks because the teachers interpreted their behaviour as, oh, I need to give them more time. Well, they're really smart. I need to really help them and I need to work harder. And because they, their nonverbal behaviour, so our nonverbal behaviour accounts for everything. Our verbal means very mm. little. What we say means little. So the person, the, the, the child who was previously struggling, they were now experiencing the other, right, as you're interested in me, you're making an effort in me. That wakes, that wakes an individual up. Like, wow, I now dare to reach into the world and be myself, be who I want to be, ask a certain question. And when... It could be interpreted as, why are you asking that question? Like, that doesn't make sense. You know, uh, you know, I, oh, excuse me. If somebody asks a question and we perceive them as being low performing, we go, oh, God, they're still asking that question, right? Whereas when we perform, perceive them to be high performing, we're more likely to go, oh, wow, like, good question, yes. Because we want to connect with people who are more like us. So if you have a teacher who's wanting to, you know, uh, identify with the student who's you know got potential and you know is high performing and and how great that we can really take them to those you know higher places um you know it's very motivating and very satisfying but equally what we really want to do is check that bias and just look at there are many reasons why a student is struggling beyond academic in fact often it's got nothing to do with necessarily any inherent academic and not that I necessarily believe in that by itself but you know so much more to do with the emotional landscape of that young person um, in terms of early childhood experiences and that you know that's related to those adverse childhood experiences I was referring to earlier and you know when we can really sit with a person you know I'm sure we've all had examples where we've had that one person or that one teacher who has said that one thing that's really made a difference in our life and made us feel a lot more worthwhile or that we could achieve certain goals. But but when, as educators, we can really connect to children who are struggling as people rather than as a difficult student, you know, or a difficult employee in the workplace, it's like there's an actual human being there and we all have behaviours and we all have thoughts and we all have feelings We've all got a skeleton and muscles and a nervous system. We are the same. We're just the same. It does not matter (laughs) if we're living out on the street under a bridge or in a certain palace. 
we are just the same. And it's just a shame that we treat each other so differently and so appallingly. Mm. And it's just a real indictment, I think, on our society and on our values that we we just want to really check ourselves and look at, I've got a, I've got a bit of a mantra for being kind. And, you know, just be kind. It really doesn't take much. All you need to do is look at someone and smile. And, um, you know, I find it when I'm walking around the street, particularly during lockdowns, just looking at someone and making eye contact. And often I find people who are from different backgrounds struggle, you know, to make that eye contact because they're so used to being isolated. They don't want to re-experience it, so they avoid the discrimination. And, you know, you, you kind of want to be careful about how you say hi. You don't want to be in their face like, you know, with, hey, how are you? You know, if someone's really sensitive, you just want to, you know, just go, hey, just a lot more gently. So, I mean, you may be the one person that will have said that on their walk or if you kind of see them again, you know, you can slowly develop kind of a nice rapport where you're more likely to see them from, you know, walking up to you and, and making some eye contact and speaking in that soft and gentler voice just to let them know and give them messages of it's safe, you're safe with me, I'm not going to hurt you, you know, because when someone's been discriminated against, there's a lot of pain there that they're running away from and they don't know what it's like to feel safe and to feel that someone actually cares for them even when they don't know anything about them. So I'm a great advocate for being kind, making eye contact, saying hi, being really welcoming. I'm actually known in my communities for being quite welcoming. So, and I just think if we can translate that out across the world, one little tiny hello um, or one tiny conversation at a time, we can make a difference. There's a ripple effect there. Yeah, yeah. great. Uh, Jared, well, did you want to come in? No. What do you no. two do in that round? Kind of interested in that. How do you um, deal uh, with uh, or manage those, what? types of you know opportunities where you can either discriminate or or connect in with a person i think as i've got older i think i'm a bit more aware of stuff like that i've always had i don't tend to look at color with people like i've always had friends from different races different cultures i just always see them as people and look at them for their personality rather than how they look or how they what culture they're in i've got so many friends from different cultures um i do filmmaking and i recently I've, when i do filmmaking casting i also always make sure to kind of have a quite a culturally diverse cast like i have people yeah. from all different backgrounds in our film like i've got the film that i'm working on at the moment we've got people that are mixed race we've got people that are asian we've got people that are australian people that are um european like we've got so many different cultures in a film like just i go yes. based on their acting skills rather than what they look like or their background yeah yeah so how did you do that do you remember a time when you were conscious about making a choice to behave in that way or is it just something that you I have just, been raised on i just where i've been raised like even from the when i was young I always remember having one of my best friends was black when I was little, like, and my mum yeah. was really good friends with his mum. So I, I think it's just the way I've been raised and people I've been raised around that I've always yeah. been accepting of other cultures. Like, I've not always understood it, but I've made the effort yeah. to try and understand it, especially now yeah. as well. Like, I'm studying learning disability support, and there's so much stuff I didn't know about Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders because I've only been in Australia for like the last two years. So yes. like, I've learned so much and it's so interesting and like it's made me more aware of yeah. how they, they're treated and how they're raised and how their culture is to make sure yeah. that I'm not being biased towards other people and treating people differently just because of how they're raised or their background. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, it's great. And so that, that to me comes from your parents, your family, yeah. you know, the way they believe about what they believe about people and uh yeah that just translates it just flows from them to you yeah you know besides you might have made your own decisions based on your own education your own friendships yeah how much do you think it was if it was your family that you raised i think with? my parents especially the way they raised me and who they raised me around as well that 
I was always taught not to discriminate or treat someone differently. Uh-huh. Excellent. That's and so a good. lot of time, if I've not liked someone, it's been because of their personality, not because of who they are or their background or anything. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's really wonderful. And I think for me, I, I try and, you know, educate myself in, you know, in terms of kind of different cultures and people's different experiences. You know, I try and be mindful of any kind of unconscious bias that is operating in yeah. me. You know, sometimes I probably manage that, other times maybe I don't. Um, but, but I also, I think in therapy, it's important to really to, to talk about it. You know, sometimes I think, you know, as a, as a white person, these conversations are difficult. You know, but I think it's yeah. important, really. And I think also, if we don't understand something about somebody else, let's ask. Yeah. You know, let's yes. let's let's have a conversation about it. Let's very have a similar to mental health. Very yeah. similar to mental health. Like yeah. since I've done this podcast, I've learned so much stuff about mental health. Like there was, I only knew what anxiety and depression were, and I've heard I'd heard of the other stuff, but I didn't know a lot about. So doing the podcast because I wanted to learn about other people because I knew. I've had good support, like more so in the last few years, because more people understand what mental health is than before. Like when I was younger, I, would, I didn't have a clue much of like hardly any knowledge of what mental health was. I knew what depression was, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew about panic attacks because I'd had them as a child. But like, I just wanted like the same with racism. I've always wanted uh, all religion and culture and. Um, mental health I've wanted to educate myself so I know more about it so I can help if one of my friends has that mental health disorder I hate saying disorders because it's horrible yeah. it's just sounds just like say a horrible experience. Word. Say, say experience yeah that Is mental that health with you? yeah oh, so that mental health yeah, experience all that lived experience. experience yeah that lived experience with yeah. something like anxiety or PTSD and like yeah. so many the people we've had on, I'm sure Mark will agree the people we've had on this podcast some of their stories are so amazing and the journey that they've gone and the obstacles they've overcome it really goes to show like everyone's got their own journey everyone's an individual and mm. of course I'm saying they always talk about individual like individuals treat everyone as an individual because mm-hmm. there's a lot of generalization of people with learning disabilities where they're seen as a group rather than individuals and obviously the same with people with race and culture and and backgrounds as well. People are seen as this group rather than individuals. Yeah, it's based on fear. Mm. And when we have fear, it separates us. And when we are feeling safe and in ourselves, not because of anyone else, when we internally have got an experience of feeling safe and protected and comfortable, we're more open-minded. We're like that little baby in the world who feels safe, right, to reach out for the ball, to play with the ball. They don't. Or, you know, if they're playing with other babies of different colours, they, they just wouldn't have a clue about that. They're just, you know, mm. reaching out and reaching out into the world. But when they pick up that subtle kind of conditioning or if there's like a no, don't reach out into the ball, uh, you know, to get the ball, then they're going to withdraw. And that's what we do. It all it starts from early childhood. There's this, there's these uh, series of conditioning um, experiences and collectively they lead us to either feeling safe in the world or unsafe in the world. And when we're feeling unsafe in the world, you know, we just withdraw from all types of um, experiences. And, you know, particularly if we've had uh, discrimination, then we're also going to be uh, feeling unsafe in the world because we're feeling set apart. We're feeling like there's something wrong with us. Uh, why don't they like us? That doesn't feel right. That's not fair. And it doesn't, it's not right and it's not fair. And so it's just easier to withdraw because it's just too painful. Uh, but it's just so incredibly um, uh, an, a massive act of humanity to be able to reach towards somebody who looks different from us. Even the fact of saying that is discriminatory. Well, you look different to me, right? <laughs> like, you know, I don't have like hair like yours and I don't have like that little mo going on, you know, but <laughs> but I'm still able to talk with you. And but it's just all these levels of it's just you're a person. And regardless yeah. of who is in front of me, they're a person. And I just am blown away with how interesting people are. And I have the absolute privilege of getting to know what people are like. Um, within my room because I get to talk to them as a psychologist so people are incredible they're amazingly inspiring and 
you know, sometimes the greatest sadness is that they don't see that because they haven't had that, that, that level of experience in their life by anyone else, especially people who are the most important, their primary caregivers, haven't given them those messages that they're, that they're special and they're just to be loved just because of them, who they are, regardless of anything else that they do or say or how they look or any of that, that we're all, uh, we're all seeking love and we're all worthy of love and love really just means are you kind of interested in me and, and are you available to me you know very simple ways of kind of defining what love is isn't it are you there for me are you interested in me will you turn towards me when I need you and they're kind of the principles behind acts of love yeah if we can yeah, show those to people one of the other things that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up like as you mentioned before, like my parents, my parents raised me as well. Like I've had interrelate, I've been interrelation like before my relationship I'm in now. I've had interracial relationships where I've gone out with like Caribbean girl, a Caribbean girl, or Jamaican. Like again, with the thing, I don't see color. I see them, the personality that I was drawn to. Mm-hmm. Then I wanted to learn about their background. I wanted to learn about their culture because I've always found it fascinating. Mm-hmm. I've been to some of the countries that they've they've been from with my parents. My parents have always made sure that we've gone and explored other countries and learned learned about the countries as well. So I think that's probably contributed as well to why I don't I tend to not discriminate against people because of their background or because of their mm-hmm. color. Yes. Yeah, but did you say your parents took you there so that you could experience different cultures? Yeah, so we've been to a lot of different countries. I've been to quite a few different places in the Caribbean, quite a lot of different places in Europe, and we've gone to like a lot of the historical places as well to learn about different things. We went to Mexico a few years ago, and we went to a Mayan village to go and look at like the background and the history of Mexico as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that just somewhere. demonstrates, yeah. Something I've always found fascinating called the history and stuff of other countries. Yeah, yeah. Well, your parents have demonstrated a great respect towards you as a human being and exposing you to opportunity, you know, as their child, and then also towards other cultures. So that Mm. that respect just flows, as I was saying before. You know, they say that values are caught, not taught. (laughs) So you just catch them. They're just in the air, like with your, I mean, literally they're not in the air, but, you know, it's nonverbal and you just model yourself, you know, uh, on their behaviours and you're hearing what they're saying and you're hearing the way they're saying it. And that is the way that we learn how to be in the world based on our very early childhood experiences. And, you know, I'm just hoping that anyone that hears this doesn't think that they're fixed, you know, if they've had really awful and traumatic experiences, we've got a wonderful capacity to become aware of um, of our feelings and of our thoughts and our behaviours. And we've got a wonderful capacity to become present to that and then to make changes in the direction that we want. So I am not just an advocate, but I believe that it is effective to only really look at noticing what you're doing and checking which way do I want to go? How do I want to be in the world? And moving towards that. And that's far more effective than looking at what you're doing and thinking and feeling and trying to stop it because then you get locked in a loop of trying to stop something and putting energy into stopping it and you're nowhere near the closer towards stepping towards where you want to be, (laughs) you know. So often people will say to me, oh, I want to stop being frustrated. Okay, well, there's what I call a disconnect because you're trying to not be something. It's like, what do you want? Well, I want to be happier. Okay, let's define that. And so we break it down and then they're like, oh, this is actually much clearer and easier because now I can take steps towards this little uh, part of, you know, these, these little parts that all contribute towards me feeling happier in the world rather than being locked into a system where I'm trying to avoid something. And then because I've become unsuccessful with that, then I end up, you know, trying to um, medicate myself off it with, you know, either with pharmaceutical medication or with alcohol or substances or working hard or gambling or any other range of ways that we just try to avoid the pain that we feel when we're not getting what we want. But it sounds to me like your parents have really, um, you know, given you a great many opportunities and value diversity. They value people. Were they judgmental? No. Critical? Yeah. No. They've always been very 
make sure that I treat others how I want to be treated. I mean, I was bullied as a child by other people, but like I would never treat someone that way because I know how it made me feel. Yeah, and it's obviously that yes. a lot led to a lot of my mental health stuff. Like my my partner now is Australian, and her family's Australian, and we've got uh-huh. my brother-in-law's Lebanese as well. So. I've been learning a lot about like Lebanese culture as well because I've met his parents and they're Lebanese. They talk a lot about their background and living in Lebanon. So like he's his dad's such a fascinating person. Like some of the stories he's told us. So, yeah. I'm yeah. learning more about culture being here as well because then I'm learning about Aboriginals, Torres Strait Islanders, and then all the different mm-hmm. like the Australian culture as well. So yeah. Well done. So what part of Mel- what part of Australia are you in? I'm in Melbourne. Oh, now do you have a footy team? Uh, Melbourne. Question if you're in Melbourne. <laughs> oh, you go for Melbourne? Yeah, my girlfriend does. Oh, so I have to so I got to Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, look, if you need another footy team, go for Collingwood. That's my recommendation. However, very happy for Melbourne with their grand final win. <laughs> yeah, I've only supported them for three years, so it's been a bit yeah. of an up and down. Um, is no, there anything you'd like to add, Mark, at all? Uh, no, so, I just just wanted to only a bit. I'm conscious of the time, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you you'd like to talk about, Betty? Or maybe yeah. your work. I'd, we've we've touched on your work a little, haven't we? But is there anything around the work that you do, or, or anything really? I've kind of weaved it in, you know, with various comments that I've made. Mm. Um, you know, really, if we can try to build connections with primarily ourselves. And what I mean by that is because I can just, you know, it's quite easy once you understand what I'm trying to say, but we don't talk enough about it in our society to, to know what I mean. But what I do mean is, you know, to notice what we're feeling. And, you know, when we're lost in thought, we really want to just become aware of what is happening physiologically in our body so that we can be aware of how our stress plays out. Because when we're happy, we're fine. We don't need to do this exercise necessarily. But when we're either, you know, angry or anxious or depressed or, you know, the continuum of of each of those, what I call the buckets of emotions, we really want to have a look at how is our body responding? And I do this exercise where I ask people to describe what their experiences is in terms of, you know, where where is it that you're feeling what you're feeling and, um, the size of it, the shape of it, the colour of it. You need to you know, close your eyes and concentrate on this. And then to, after a while of doing that, you can become a lot more aware of what it is that your basic needs are in terms of that experience. So it could be anything that we can do to generate a feeling of safety, of feeling protected, of feeling looked after. And it's an incredibly effective um, approach and something that I'd love to share more Uh, have more discussion around because it's just so effective and and my clients will say gosh no one's ever told me about how to look after my feelings they've ever they've only ever kind of helped me identify them and then to maybe distract myself off them but not necessarily to turn towards them almost like we do with people turn towards our feelings and take care of them and then what we can do is we're better equipped then to turn towards people in our community and take care of the way we interact with them. So that's how I was, uh, when I was referring to, you know, when you see someone who's hesitant in making eye contact, it's not appropriate to kind of raise your voice and shout out, you know, a hearty hello. It's far too kind of like in your face and um, it can be really quite scary for that person. But a lot more sensitive just to gently go, hey, you know, or just to nod your head in acknowledgement of them. So, yeah, just being really careful about how we connect to ourselves and then to other people. That would be my something that I would just like to leave the session on because that really does speak towards closing the gap rather than having this gap that looks like discrimination and racism. Thank you. Um, I'd like to say thank you to Betty for joining us for this episode. Um, And thank you again to Mark for helping host. We'll be back with another episode next week um, as we'll be joined by Simon and Dan Haynes, uh, who are good friends of mine, and we'll be discussing uh, mental health in the family. And um, yeah, we'll be back for another another episode next week. And um, I think we've got another episode on Monday on um, mental health first aid with Hannah Buckland, who'll be joining us.
Um, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Betty. Thank you. Good to meet Good you. you. If you or anyone you know has been affected by the topics discussed in today's episode or previous episodes, please contact your local or country's helpline. You'll find them by going to Google and typing in helpline. Um, they have Samaritans, suicide helpline, but remember that you're not alone, as the title of the podcast says. Um, there are many other people like you that have got mental health issues and feel suicidal and feel alone, but there's always someone there for you to talk to, be it a friend, a family member, a stranger, a psychotherapist or a doctor. There's someone to talk to. I've been in that position before. And talking to someone really does help. It's okay to not be okay. And I will see you in the next episode.